You're listening to Consolidate That. Welcome back to Consolidate That. Ivan, so great to see you after the Thanksgiving holiday, and I'm really excited to learn some more from our guest today. Hi, I'm Ivan Zak, and I'm happy to introduce our guest today, Dr. Edward Canara. Dr. Canara is currently the managing member of Canara Consulting Group, which he founded in 2007. His group focused on management consulting and leadership development with clients that include the human and animal health industries, research organizations, academia, veterinary medical associations, and private veterinary practices. Dr. Canara, welcome to the show. Thank you for finding the time. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. So with your background, can you probably open up with it? Why such a diversification between academia, veterinary, medical? What is the main focus and how did you expand into different niches or verticals, if you would call them? Well, a lot of my work has to do with, with strategy and in the animal health space. And so I think that transcends those different stakeholders. The process and the fundamentals of developing good strategy as they apply to animal health and you know, patient care, regardless of whether that patient care may be provided you know, at the grassroots in a veterinary practice or has to do with the type of uh, products that need to be developed in, in a research lab by a bench scientist. You know, the fundamentals of setting goals and putting plans together transcends those different locations, but, you know, they're all focused on the same thing, which is, again, patient care, ultimately. That's that's interesting. And, and I agree, you know, business is business and the strategy is strategy. So I'll throw a curveball of a question here to you. What I'm is kind of struggling when I'm thinking about the veterinary consolidation or medical consolidations like dentistry and other small sort of offices, or as some people call them medtail, like a retail or medical services. When they're consolidated, if you think about any business that is not related to medicine and veterinary, then usually in management, you have operations. So there's an arm that is responsible for operation. There's finance, there's IT, there's others. Operations is usually the biggest one. And there's no sort of any deviation in, in the strategy there or in management team beyond that. When you're talking about dentistry or veterinary medicine or something else, all of a sudden you're building out this other arm which is your operations, but then there's medical operations. And then I think that that's really confusing. And then this split between the two, I don't actually know, A, who wins? And how do you how do you build out the two? And how do you arrive to sort of unified management? Because a lot of the times when you have that, those two arms, then they either, either one is fake and is just sort of artificial, uh, which is okay, and at least everybody agrees on that, or there's a constant conflict. We do this for medical reasons, we do this for operational reasons. So a bit of a loaded question, but what do you think about that? No, I mean, I, I, I think you have hit the, uh, that's the challenge. You've just described the challenge, okay? And I believe the solution is is sometimes simpler than than we believe. And I, and I, I look at it like this. What you just described is that we we have stated business goals, okay? And as you say, there's there's a lot of consistency that transcends industry if we remove that kind of medical piece around that. And and so there can be alignment there. What's the real challenge is the the, the medical operations piece that you have have asked about. And so I look at this as as really trying to develop 
win-win value propositions at the highest level in planning. And at the center of that, there has to be agreement with the leadership team that nothing really can happen unless the decisions are ultimately fundamentally sound for best practices, patient care. If we're making our decisions based on best practice, patient care are those then consistent with our our business goals and are those plans consistent with an engaged veterinary team. So let's look at this maybe from from the other and uh, the other perspective of this. Let's say that the business comes up with some the operations part of it comes up with an idea that we want to have standardized SOPs that will require these diagnostic tests in every hospital because the numbers are amazing if we can just do this in every patient that comes through the door, okay? Well, the question that has to be asked at the highest level and the check step that occurs for that is, is that goal that has been set, is it consistent with good patient care And not only is it consistent with good patient care, can we communicate that to the entire healthcare team in a way that they don't feel they're now selling that diagnostic test? Do they believe it's in the best interest of patient care? Okay. And if the answer is yes to all of those, now we have have done something that will drive more business, provide better patient care, and we have a healthcare team that is bought in and motivated to make it happen. But if at the beginning of that decision-making process, the great idea of this, this new diagnostic that we can make sure every patient has, if it doesn't pass the rate face test in terms of, is it really in the best interest of that patient and, and thereby that the client that owns that, that patient that's not going to be paying for it, then the rest of it falls apart and never gets executed at the practice level. So first of all, I know that can all happen, all right, but it's much harder to make that happen if you don't have at the highest levels of leadership that are putting those types of plans together, if you don't have a marriage of what you've labeled business operations and medical operations that truly respect each other and understand what each of those are trying to achieve, okay? So if as the chief medical officer, I don't fundamentally understand what are the pressures that the operations is really under to deliver on financial objectives and targets. I can't isolate myself and just say, all we can do is what's in the best interest of of exceptional patient care, because I might want to have an idea that I want a, a portable MRI in every clinic. And if I don't get that unless that MRI is generating how many X in terms of profitability over what period of time, then I'm just as ridiculous as a business guy coming up with a list of new diagnostic tests that really don't make sense, okay? And as a business, as the business lead, I have to respect that nothing happens at the practice level in terms of engagement 
if if that practice team doesn't really believe that they're doing what's best for the patient, the employees that work in those practices, especially the technicians and, and the animal caregivers and so forth, they are not doing it for the money, okay? They are doing it because they are passionate about patient care. And therefore, they have to believe in what they're doing. And, and so first, the fundamentals have to be right. And then there has to be a real emphasis on communication from corporate coming downward as to why we're doing what we're doing. And those teams have to believe really that corporate understands that it, it really is about patient care. And those veterinary teams really have to understand, at least on a macro basis, what we're trying to accomplish from a business standpoint. Now, Dr. Kinnear, would you think that a way to go about increasing that understanding across the organization is to have veterinarians at a higher leadership level within the group, whether it's the chief medical officer, but even as the CEO or as the head of operations on the business side, or is that, what are the pros and cons that you think on those? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's all about the individual skill set of the, of the person, okay? So in terms of structure, I think that absolutely there needs to be a chief medical officer on the most senior leadership team. Because what happens oftentimes is, you know, once a bright idea is hatched, somebody owns that bright idea and, and now they're married to it. And now if the senior leadership team endorses it, and now somewhere downhill, the medical part of the team goes time out, somebody's got to capitulate and go, oh, maybe it wasn't such a great idea. And, you know, nobody likes to do that. And so if Again, at the time of those initial discussions, the CMO is saying, well, hang on a second. I hear what you're trying to do. What you've proposed isn't necessarily going to get us there, but how about this? Okay. I understand what we're trying to achieve from a business standpoint, but how about if we, we do it in this way? Okay. The business guy doesn't care how we get there as long as the numbers are going to still work. Okay. But the medical guy cares how we get there. All right, because all the teams care how we get there. So I, I believe that absolutely, you know, you can have a DVM in the CEO position. Okay, but then they truly have to understand business. They, I mean, they've, they've got to be able to have those same discussions with, you know, with the venture capitalists and, and, and the board. And they have to be able to talk that talk. And, and yeah, you know, it's almost a nice to have that they're a veterinarian as well. But in, in that environment, probably their business skills are even more important than their veterinary skills. And I usually recommend, if, if that's the situation, they actually have a CMO as well. Somebody that is only thinking about that, for example. I mean, I'm not sure if you're aware, but you know, the CEO of Pfizer right now, Albert Borla, is a veterinarian. And so you know, there are some extremely impressive veterinarians with great business background out there. And the dilemma I see is, is Ivan, something that you had mentioned when you were framing the initial question about business operations versus medical operations is oftentimes, yeah, there's a chief medical officer and, and they are purely there for the optics. And they, they really 
don't view themselves as part of the decision-making team, nor are they invited to be a part of the decision-making team for the business. Now, again, that's a two-edged sword. They need to have that skill set and they need to have that understanding to be respected by the business guys. So it's much more about the individual skill set of the individual in, in my mind, you know, as to, to the influence and persuasive power they can have. But as a starting point, Ryan, to get back to your question on structure, I believe that there needs to be a respected voice, medical operations at the most senior leadership team decision-making table from really day one. I think it, I really like how you described it because there is actually, I think, a very fine balance between the two extremes of the chief medical officer. One, it's the public figure. And someone hires this great veterinarian who is a speaker, you know, well-known. That's optics. That's really just to sell people on joining an organization. But then you know that in that organization, if that's the chief medical officer, there's just a public figure, then they're not going to have operational influence. That's that usually that's what I see. The other part is that if the CMO is a strong operational background, and uh, very strong, and that way we'll have the influence on leaning more that there's medical operations rather than operations. So everything will be medicine. So the business will actually suffer because we want MRI in every clinic and we want to perfectionize all our processes, you know, and rewrite the soaps and rewrite the medicine and just, you know, obnoxious <laughs> things. They're just too much for business. You can't do that because it at the end of the day, it's a business. So so I think it's a very fine sort of characteristic of that person that has to be enough, has have enough charisma to be a public speaker, represent the company medically, but then have an input and influence at the at the decision table on processes that are stood up still by operations, but always have a, a medical subject matter expertise within every decision. So that's I think that sort of balance. You really stated that and summarized it well, Ivan, because here's the, the dilemma that sometimes I see in what you've described. And, and therefore, there may be two people that are required. And, and here's the reason is that sometimes that, that CMO that is hired because of their name recognition and so forth, they, they often come out of academia and, and they don't want to be dirtied by the business operations discussion. They're too good for it, okay? Yep. And they're not interested in it, okay? And so therefore, you know, every the business guys are kind of like, well, we've got this CMO and, you know, we're going to go do our thing. And now by the time this stuff gets down to the practice level, you know, it's, it's, it's a mess. And oftentimes a high, highly visible person from academia has no more clue as to what goes on at the practice level than the business guys. All right. And so you need to have a CMO or again, I'm not going to get hung up on the, the, the title because you might have that highly visible CMO that adds prestige and, and so forth and credibility to the organization. Great. But you have to have somebody at the table that understands both the business and the medicine and can have an appreciation for the challenges of both. You know, I, for a large part of my career, after I was in private practice, I was a CMO for, uh, for Pfizer Animal Health. And 
you know, our raison d'etre, you know, our, our reason for being for our team, you know, we, we, we said that we were, we were veterinarians first and foremost, and our allegiance was to our veterinary oath. But, and on the slide, but was put in capital letters, but our marketing and sales colleagues have to believe that we are absolutely essential for the success of this business. Okay. So the way that we behave and the way that we interact, okay, has to recognize that this is a business that does not preclude us from fulfilling our veterinary oath. So it is that balancing act, okay? And it can be done, all right? There are business realities for every practice. There's the nice to have things that we'd like to do. There's the need to to have things. Life is about trade-off decisions and, and prioritization, and we can still provide really good patient care without perfectionism, as you described it. But yet, we better make sure that what we are recommending and what we are doing is in the best interest of that patient or we lose the, the healthcare team. You know, this is where, you know, right now in this environment, staff retention is, is everything, right? And if veterinary teams don't feel that they are doing what, you know, they signed up to do, they have lots of options down the street. And so now more than ever, you know, leadership really has to pay attention to ensuring that we've got a really healthy workplace culture that people feel like they're appreciated, like they're being heard, like they're being valued. And again, all of this, you know, it's kind of like I, I said, all, for me, all roads lead to patient care, but that also has to be consistent with sound business practices. And it also has to be consistent with a healthy workplace environment for the team. 100%. I want to throw another curveball. <laughs> so this is the question that I think kind of gets down to the interest of the people that are doing the work. So recently, the more I think about the consolidation or in general, the world of how we treat the patient, the journey of the patient let's say that is really sick, let's say it starts a GP practice. And what the general practitioner is trying to do is to, if you're on commission, squeeze as much as you can or your practice owner out of that owner. And then when you get to the point where the patient is critical and really has to go to emergency, then they send that patient to emergency and the journey didn't end, but you squeeze as much as you could from them because this is forced by the management. And then you send them to emergency and then in emergency, they squeeze more. And then there, you know, you, you have to prescribe, you know, x-rays to everybody, more blood work, that magic test that brings that return on investment. And then after that, the overnight guy ER that did his or her job then sends that patient to specialty where specialty complains and says, well, ER guys spend all the money, so we can't do anything with the patient. So that's, you know, even if that sequence is not within the consolidation, now there's other consolidations that uh, offer, for example, a partial acquisition or a joint venture, whatever way you call it, and there's two clinics across the road from each other. They still retain 30, 40% of their equity, and then their front desk is full of patients, and then they're behind, but they would never send that patient across the road because they're still competing, even though they're within the same organization. And then even if the ER belongs to that organization, they're still squeezing that patient along the way 
every time it touches any sort of provider because they're now uh, commission-based or were commission-based and they're trying to produce because the management will come in and say, you didn't order enough tests, you didn't do enough x-rays. The final outcome of that is patient is underserved and overpriced because you can't do much. And the outcome which leads to burnout in our industry is economic euthanasia that basically is something that we're at fault then for, that we're all about money, but it's because we're we're having those sort of patterns. So do you think that, and, and I'm, it's kind of a leading question, but I truly believe that commission-based compensation in our domain is destroying the patient care as well as satisfaction as a veterinarian or technicians, because they're, as you said, they're not here for the money. Do you think that there is economic validity to canceling completely commission-based compensation, and even if you maximize the market rate that you hire veterinarians for, you will get to better outcomes and better production if you don't pay commission? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a question that would demand an answer far exceeding the time of this podcast, because it's one of those yes, but, or yes, maybe. It really, it really depends. I think that commissions can end up being the tail that wags the dog, if, if to excuse my terrible analogy there. But I think there can be a place for what I would call hybrid commission components without a total commission approach. All right. So you know, you, you face this, you know, the, these are kind of the age old questions that you see with, you know, how do, how do you compensate sales forces and how do you, you know, to try to, uh, how do you try to engender teamwork within a sales force and shared best practices if you've got a compensation program in place that pits everyone against each other, for example. So I, I think that the, Commission versus non-commission compensation programs is a complex question. I'm not ready to say that I don't think commission doesn't have a place, but I think that what has happened is that all too often it has evolved into the scenario you described, which is counterproductive. And it's counterproductive for everybody. People don't feel good about doing that. There's a similar thing going on right now on the racetrack. Uh, it has, hasn't gone on for years on, on, on the racetrack. I, I started my, my career as a thoroughbred racehorse veterinarian. And veterinarians on the racetrack are just as veterinarians in small animal practice for the most part. They make money by charging for the medicine itself. So if you're prescribing medication for the horse... The more medication you prescribe, the more money you make, all right? So there's an argument, of which I'm a proponent, that says to give the betting public as much confidence as possible, you have a centralized pharmacy of which veterinarians make no money from the medication themselves. They make money from their professional services of examining and treating that horse, and the money from the profit from the medications can go back into some type of a of a general research fund or 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 whatever for the betterment of, of equine care, for example. All right. And it's a similar situation that you want to remove any question of motivation 
for prescribing in a small animal clinic, as you as as you described, based on the company on what I'm going to make from those recommendations. On the other hand, again, there are those veterinarians that will look at a situation and say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about what's stacking up in the waiting room there. If if I spend an hour with this client, so be it. I spend an hour with this client. And now my colleagues down the next two rooms have to somehow make up for this. So, so again, I think there's a, there's a way to, to tackle this based on, you know, a, a lot of what we do, right, is all based on the evolution of the overreaction of, of what we've learned. So there was a time when compensation-based programs were pariahs. I mean, I'm, I'm an old guy, so I, I, I go back before them. And then what we see is that, ah, okay, this, this is good. This keeps even associates now um, aware, much more aware of the business realities. But then pendulum swings too far and we get into a situation like you described. So I'm not necessarily ready to say that I believe commission programs are all bad. I say that you're, you're absolutely right. The questions you raise say that we should take a hard look at them. And, and there's probably some hybrid models that I, I think would be potentially better. That's interesting. I, kind of a rambling answer for what you asked, but I, I think it's a complicated answer. No, I, I agree. And th- there's a lot of factors there because, you know, I like that you went towards this sort of, you know, how much you prescribe and then central pharmacy that donates it into a research fund. We have that now. Unfortunately, we, we well, unfortunately or fortunately, medicine went now back from being a sales store of the pharmacy with the help of Chewy and Amazon. It did go back to that fund. That fund is not research. It's Chewy and Amazon. And it doesn't matter how much we prescribe they're taking the gravy. So I think that medicine is swinging back to focus on services that they provide and as efficient as they can provide them. Because if you don't, you know, the pharmacy and food sales were 20 plus percent at some point, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Right now, all of that is taken by by those two yep. uh, and many more to come. So it's interesting to see that right now it really needs to be a focus based on services without consideration of what's the margin on medication. But that simplifies the calculation of, of the uh, proceeds and everything else because you don't have to, you know, on Clavimox, we commissioned this much. On vaccines, we commissioned this much, which becomes a nightmare in the accounting, especially if you merge couple hundred practices together. So it's interesting how medicine is turning back to that. But we blew through 30 minutes and I didn't (laughs) even notice that. So (laughs) we usually promise 20, 25 minutes to our listeners. So I think that we'll we'll wrap up here. We usually wrap up with uh, two questions. And one of them is there a book, a TED Talk, a any sort of movie video that you've seen recently that you would recommend to our listeners? I'm going to answer this like, you know, like a dinosaur. And and that is, you know, I, I, I try to keep up on kind of the latest in strategy models and strategy development models. And I'm pretty unimpressed on what I see lately because I see lots of corporate speak and corporate talk and concise messaging around planning that, you know, I usually say, what? What, what, what do you mean by that when everybody's shaking their head like they're understanding? And so I go back to the fundamentals and I love Covey's The Seven Habits 
you know, I'm a blocking and tackling guy and I, I just, I, I'm usually surprised how, um, how that holds up. So that's and I, I thought you were going to recommend like a really hot TikTok account for us to follow, but yeah, you, Ryan, you're going to be surprised, but my consulting group does not have a website. I'm not on LinkedIn. I'm not on Twitter or Facebook. I'm not on, as I call it, tic-tac-toe. <laughs> my business is hundred percent word of mouth. So I'm, I'm not the best guy to talk about technology. Well, then the, the last question that we will ask you, which is, is an interesting one because you were recommended to us to be on the show by Stacey Purcell. And we are curious who you would recommend for us to have on the show. And you can't say Stacey because she's already done it. One of the things that I didn't get a chance to talk about very much today, Ryan, was the importance that I, I think that a healthy workplace culture plays now in terms of employee retention. And I believe taking a thoughtful approach to defining the culture that you would like in the business is essential. And then putting in place the steps to develop that culture and ensure that that culture thrives is, is just absolutely essential in today's workplace. And um, an individual by the name of Randy Hall that I have worked with in the past I think does a really nice job uh, speaking about culture and has done a lot of work with practice teams on culture. And so given the fact that I think that is probably one of the most important keys for success uh, for consolidators is the workplace culture, I would recommend Randy. Well, thank you for finding the time. That was a very interesting conversation. And I hope that we'll bump into each other somewhere at the at the upcoming live conferences. Yeah, I, I know I'll be at, at Western States because I'm moderating. So, you know, maybe we'll see each other there. Okay. Excellent. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate the opportunity to participate. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Consolidate That. If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at vetintegrations.com.